Our first scripture reading is in the book of Genesis, book of Genesis chapter 32, and we'll be reading from verse 22 to the end of the chapter. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men, and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Penel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed, Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the hip socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. The second scripture reading is in the book of 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. I must go on boasting, though... There is nothing to be gained by it, for there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who, 14 years ago, was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses, though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with my weaknesses." Insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You may be seated. One of the best books in our resource center in the lobby, in my mind, is Lane and Tripp's How People Change. Early on, They argue, when most 
people dream of change taking place. We think that change needs to take place outside ourselves. We think how much better life would be if a certain situation or a relationship were different. God says that what needs change most is us. He does not just work to fix situations and relationships. He's intent on rescuing us from ourselves. We are the focus of his loving, lifelong work of change. God's intent on rescuing you from yourself. My, oh my, if we have ever had a text in Genesis in our book-long study of this first book of the Bible that verifies that truth, we have it here with Jacob whom I've called all day long, blessings bearer number three. Half the book of Genesis is about the life and times of Jacob. And he's a mess. With whom God is intent on rescuing from himself. He Remember now, we've been away for a couple of weeks. We're full bore now to the finish line. Five more messages. We last left him coming off 20 years hard labor under the leadership and authority of Laban, his lying, cheating, pagan father-in-law. Back in Genesis 31, he brokered an uneasy peace with Laban that set a boundary. No going back that way. He's on the road again, headed back to the promised land of his birth and upbringing. But that road's not any easier. He's got this huge unresolved issue with Esau, whom he cheated out of the birthright and blessing decades ago. Unresolved conflict of an enormous nature, so bad that, if you remember, Jacob ran because Esau threatened to take his life. Meet him on the road again, literally between a rock and a hard place, because going forward seems no easier than going backward. 
And it is precisely in that hard place God once again comes in grace to meet Jacob. Here's my main idea for these two chapters. We're continuing a survey approach, taking in large chunks in order to finish the book by August 5th. But there's a nugget here that I think capsulizes the Spirit's aim in all of us for blessing's sake. God breaks the self-reliant to learn clinging trust in him for all things. Perhaps one of the most formidable idols of the heart is self-sufficiency. I got this. I'll figure it out. I'll get it done. God wants more for you than that. He will bless you on the road to glory, sanctifying, changing, transforming you, and break you of rank self-sufficiency. You can count on it. He will find a way. Oh, how marvelous is the wonder of that work. And I see three aspects of God's gracious work to transform us this way. One, he's patient with us in the process of change. Two, he's powerful in us in the fight for change. And he is gracious to us in the lapses. First, God is patient with us in the process of change. Now, let me remind you, if you're going to run this fast track to the end in Genesis, it's really going to help if you will read the chapters in advance. As I put on the Facebook page yesterday, Hopefully, you've had a chance to read 32 and 33. If you haven't, you didn't know that, I'm going to try to give you as much as I can without overwhelming you. But try to get in that mode, if you can, as this, the timing has necessitated. But from all of chapter 32, I see, well, actually, the first 21 verses, that he's patient. See what happens as the chapter opens in verse 1. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. 
What was that like? I mean, it's mindful of the Bethel and the ladder vision from earth to heaven back in Genesis 28. Setting out on the journey, fraught with unknowns, God comes and he gives him this vision. Angels. God goes out of his way to assure him of protection and the help of what Hebrews 1.14 calls ministering spirits. And he names the place. This is God's camp. Mananaim. Your circumstances in Christ are always a combination of two camps. The visible one you can see with its challenges and difficulties and the invisible one you can't. But in Christ, you always have two camps. You're never without aid. Did not Jesus himself know this when he asked in Matthew 26, 53, before his oppressors, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. Whatever that camp looked like for Jacob in chapter 32, verse 1, I don't imagine just a few from the angelic realm. But despite that massive encouragement of divine protection, Jacob largely resorts to same old Jacob. Not entirely, mind you, but mostly. See the big picture, verses 3 through 8. Scheming, planning. I was here John Jacob. 9 to 12, prayer. That's cool. Haven't seen that before. Longest prayer in Genesis. But then 13 to 20, scheming, planning, I got this again. Upon sending messengers of his own to inform Esau, hey, I'm coming home, he learns the brother is not waiting, he's coming with 400 retainers. Awfully large greeting for. Jacob can only think the worst. Verse 7 describes him as greatly afraid and distressed. Fear of man always casts a snare. Proverbs 25, 29, 25. What's he do? He divides the clan, substantial in size now, 
into two camps. The play on words in the Hebrew. In hopes of if he has to sacrifice one, saving the other. Verses 7 to 8. Then, hoping to appease Esau, he tries to buy him off with an extravagant gift. You can use the numbers, 550 animals. Scheming, planning, plotting. But again, there's prayer here. He is changing. Ever so slowly. And it's a good prayer. Commendable prayer, if we had time to analyze it. But if you think about it, there is one thing lacking. She never asked God what to do. There's nothing of a Second Chronicles 2012 in another extreme circumstance where the king prays, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. There is everything in his prayer of help, bail me out, but I, I got a plan. Now, I don't mean to convey that prayer is a substitute for legitimate action, good planning. Of course not. But on balance, the plotting and planning outweigh the waiting and praying. And that, dear ones, is a way to identify whether you suffer from rank self-sufficiency. The plotting and the planning will always outweigh the praying and the waiting if you suffer from this affliction. Self-sufficiency. Self-reliance. This is our Jacob. God's Jacob. Almost a hundred years old now. Still unbroken of the besetting sin captured in his name. How patient God is with him. How patient God is with you, with me. Paul asks, Do you disregard the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you to repentance? Romans 2, 4. Please don't. Pastor Harry Reeder said it well in Table Talk magazine. God is patient. He doesn't have to learn it. He is it. He's not developing it. He continually displays it. I am grateful that I can count on the fact 
that the God of all grace and glory is patient. He is patient toward me. Some of you are not buying that. You have it in your head that God's doing this with you. He is patient. Reader goes on, I never want to presume, yes, of course, upon his patience in a self-centered way, but I am grateful that I can depend upon it every day and every moment until that glorious day when I shall see him and be like him. Speaking of that day, Jacob gets an advance on it in the next section where he names the place where it happens. More on this in a moment. Peniel, for I have seen God face to face. Verse 30. I'm getting ahead of myself. Main idea again. So important today. For blessing's sake, God breaks the self-reliant to learn clinging trust all the time. He's patient in the process. Second, God is powerful in us in the fight for change. The rest of 32, verses 22 to 32, our Old Testament reading today. After the fording of the clan across the Jabbok, Jacob finds himself alone. Does that describe you, even if you're surrounded by people? Something somehow has you feeling isolated, alone. Let me tell you, that's not all bad. Some of God's fiercest work in our lives is when alone is the word that describes how you feel. <laughs> what happens next? The surprise attack of a mysterious adversary on the road, Martin Luther called one of the most obscure passages in the Old Testament. This whole wrestling with the angel all night long. And I, I got an uh, image here, one artist's rendition. This section raises a boatload of issues. 
It was easily Bennett's own message. We don't, uh, can't do that. Um, we got to limit ourselves to the essentials. Four, ready? One, Jacob realizes that the bout persists and the night climaxes with the disabling of his hip that his opponent is none other than the angel of the Lord. Like Abraham, his father, and his grandfather, and Isaac, excuse me, Abraham and Lot, he's come face to face with God's appearance in human form. Hence the name, Peniel, for face. Before Jacob must come face to face with estranged brother Esau for peacemaking, he must come face to face with God for heart changing. He must learn that to have power with men, you need intimacy with God. Two, God comes to him, not the other way around. If I may borrow from Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan is on the move and he is no tame lion. Many treat this section as a treatise of prevailing prayer. And yes, Jacob prays for blessing and he gets it, but this is not, in my mind, a treatise, a study on the art of prayer so much as it is an evidence of how much God loves his blessing bearer in coming to him in the night. He initiates. He wrestles with Jacob. He eventually dislocates or disables his hip. Three, the Lord has designs in the attack. God in sovereign grace afflicts the man with intent. He will affect a name change. Your name shall no longer be Jacob, which means deceiver, but Israel, which literally means God fights or God strives, and the battle begins in him. The change The landscape for the warfare is his heart. God will fight for Jacob with Esau, as we'll see in chapter 33, but he must first fight powerfully in Jacob to subdue his rank self-sufficiency. 
So we see the paradox. Jacob has spent a lifetime prevailing, striving with people. Esau, his father, Laban, through manipulative, self-reliant means. This is his M.O. He has yet to learn the lesson that will matter to God's people in the future when the time comes from them to enter the promised land and fight for it. The time comes to return from captivity. God will have him, them, us learn that power to prevail in any conflict, struggle, or crisis does not come from relying on one's devices, but rather in clinging to God for dear life. Say it again. Power to prevail in conflict, struggle, crisis, does not come from relying on one's own devices, but rather in clinging to God for dear life. This is God bringing Jacob to the end of himself, dear ones. But in that weakness, here's the paradox. He prevails because it hangs on to God and says, I'm not letting you go until you bless me. Hosea 12, 4a, the prophet comments on this story, this particular obscure event. He, Jacob, strove with the angel and prevailed. How? He wept and saw his favor. You want to strive? You want to fight? You want to prevail? Do it there with God. I've got nothing. I don't have this thing. I don't know what to do. I don't know how I'm going to make it. But I'm not letting go of you. I'm not walking away. I'm not turning my back. I'm not shutting down. I'm pressing in, and I'm hanging on for dear life until you bless me with whatever has to happen here. One of the great commentators of the past, A.W. Pink, summarized this beautifully. Jacob was not wrestling with this man to obtain a blessing. Instead, the man was wrestling with Jacob to gain some object from him. It was to reduce Jacob to a sense of his nothingness. It caused him to see what a poor, helpless, and worthless creature he was. It was to teach us through him the all-important lesson that in recognized weakness lies our strength. Four, God crippled Jacob 
with a permanent disability that he might never forget the critical lesson and the nature of it taught at Peniel. From that day on, he walked with a limp. That was so significant, it marked the nation to this, the day of this writing that they would not eat that part of an animal. The Apostle Paul had a similar encounter with God for similar purposes. Our New Testament reading today. Because of the heavenly visions that God has given him, he was at risk for boasting, for pride, for arrogance. And God intercepted him from that risk with the thorn in the flesh, whatever it was. Just the end of that, after pleading three times in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, we pick it up in verse 9. God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Sooner or later, you must learn to walk with a limp or rinse with a thorn if you're ever going to be set free from rank self-sufficiency. I get this, I think. I hope I do. When I look back on 2005 and the oral cancer diagnosis, the surgery that removed a third of my tongue, the recurrence on my neck, and follow-up radiation and chemo, I've never felt more alone. God got me on that road and aloneness characterized so many days in the hospital, so many days curled up on the fetal position of my family room sofa, so many days of vomiting and nausea and weight loss and fear of death. And time and time again, all I should do was say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I don't got this. Bless me. Help me. I remember preaching my first Sunday back, 2 Corinthians 12, after the surgery. My grace is sufficient. God, okay, have my Peniel. Well, Apparently not. No doubt a tribute to a gift of self-sufficiency in me that in 15, the jaw starts to fail from radiation. And then there's the diagnosis of the pathological fracture. 
and I'm on another road. And in the middle of it, Nancy dies. There's, there's nothing, there's nothing fun about being in the hospital in Miami alone as a widower. Dealing with one thing after another. But I will tell you this. There's not a time but I look in the mirror and I see all of this or that I feel the numbness that runs from here to here or that I climb up here for these last six Sundays, Lord willing, and drool all over myself that I'm not reminded I got no power with you if I'm not Holding on to Jesus for dear life. I shall be content. I must be to have learned something of the mercy of God through those difficult things to rid me as much as it has been rid of my rank self-sufficiency. What? I mean, go figure. A preacher of the Bible who communicates for a living having to struggle for every hard consonant. That's my limp. What's yours? Blessings say, pour it. God breaks the self-reliant to learn clean trust in him for all things. Patient, powerful. Third, lastly, he's gracious in the lapses in change. This is all of 33 I have a page and a half of the manuscript left. The opening of the chapter is telling in many ways, I think. Same old Jacob. But by the way, I forgot to mention this. Remember, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. In the rest of Genesis, he is referred more often by the same old name Jacob than he is the new name Israel. It's both and. Now let me tell you something about how long and hard it is to fight for change and how patient God is. He divides the family again in chapter 33. Oh my, will these guys never learn? Will I never learn? According to favoritism, Slaves out front, Leah, the least favored, and her clan next, and then Rachel and Joseph, his favorite, last in line. Now, granted, he steps out in front. He bows seven times to the ground. He'll fall all over himself to get Esau to receive the gifts he has. At least 
doing restitution for what he stole, and maybe at the very worst, to try and give back the blessing, there's disagreement about this, which God meant for him, even though he got it, through false pretenses. And it all proves unnecessary. Esau gets within eyesight, and what does he do? He gallops that horse, leaves the retainers behind, dismounts, and falls all over him. Does it remind you of any New Testament story? The prodigal son comes home ready with a speech, and the father against all convention comes running, my son was dead, now he's alive, slave the fatty calf, call the DJ, let's have a party. Somehow God worked in Esau's heart, we're not told how, softening it. All of this was not necessary. He blesses Jacob with reconciliation, even though the new limping Israel still struggles with the same old scheming Jacob. Wow. Even at the end of the chapter, he cunningly sidesteps his brother's invitation. Hey, you're back. Come live with me in Sears. Hmm. Tricks his way out of that, but worse than that, he settles in Shechem. Rather than returning to Bethel, where he met God that other time and promised, vowed to come back. He does build his first altar at Shechem, but he settles at a city that will bring a world of hurt in chapter 34. More on that next time. For blessings sake, God breaks the self-reliance that we might learn to cling to him all the time. Patient, powerful, Gracious. Do you struggle with self-sufficiency? Come on. Who doesn't? To some degree or another. Take comfort. God is patient with you. He is not done with you by any stretch of the imagination. Are you alone? Are you dealing with a conflict? A crisis? Forward or backward either way, it doesn't look so hot. Hang on. Abandon your self-sufficiency and hang on to Jesus for dear life. Don't let go. Strive for his blessing. Have you lapsed 
recently in some way, perhaps due to your self-sufficiency? Remember the gospel of the prodigal. Jesus lived without flaw the life of dependency on the Father. You should never live. Father, if this cup might pass from me, not my will, yours be done. Jesus lived a life of total dependency without fail. And if you're in him, by faith, that track record and standing is yours. And he has appeased the wrath of God with the greatest of gifts, his shed blood on the cross. On him was laid your and my rank self-sufficiency. Paid for, nailed to the cross. Come home. Come home. He will run to you. Always, always run to you. Oh, gracious Father, thank you for being the running prodigal God of extravagant grace, patient with us in our change, powerful to work transformation, And still running to us when we come home after lapsing again. Oh, we will now sing, Lord, what I trust will be our prayer. Draw us near. Draw us near. In Christ's name, amen.